good morning, community of grace. It is good to be with you on this All Saints Day. So all of you who are out there watching, you are saints and you are sinners. <laughs> That's us together, friends, every one of us. We are saints and sinners, but because of our love for Jesus and his love for us, we get to celebrate together as his people. So it's good to be with you today as we look into God's word and as we continue on our current sermon series entitled Represent. We've been in this for a number of weeks right now, and we've been asking ourselves a question. What does it mean to represent God in the world? What does that mean? And we've been looking at a number of characters throughout the Old Testament teaching us and showing us what it means imperfectly to represent God in the world. Those who were called to represent God in the world. Characters like David and Gideon. People who tried in their own strength to represent God, but also leaned into God's promises for them and his supernatural power to be able to represent him in the world. That's what we are called to do and to be, to represent God in the world. And that word represent means to represent. It means we are called to represent Jesus into the world, to be his ambassadors, to be those who follow Jesus, obey his word, are loved by him, and then go and share that love with the world. That's what it means to represent and what it means to represent. Now, Jesus, of course, did this perfectly. And that sets him apart from all the other representatives that we see in the Bible. Jesus did this perfectly. So today, we want to talk about Jesus. We want to talk about Jesus in particular, the perfect representative of God. And the title of my sermon today is Jesus, Politics, and Religion. So hang on for a second. <laughs> Let me give a disclaimer before I continue on sharing this message today. I'm not going to talk about who to vote for. I'm not going to talk about the political candidates who are running. I'm not going to talk about that. And I'll tell you why. There are a number of reasons, but there's one reason in particular. I fear the wrath of God. And I mean that in all sincerity. God commands us through the Ten Commandments to not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. That means to attach God's name to anything that is of lesser importance than him. And there is everything that is of lesser importance than God. God will not share his glory with anyone else. And to take God's name and attach God's name to any political party, candidate, or movement on this earth is to take his name in vain. And I will not do that, and I recommend you not do it either. So Jesus, politics, and religion, why are we talking about this, and why would we talk about it today? Well, obviously, you may be aware that in a couple of days, we have an election, electing the next president of the United States. That comes around every four years. I've been through seven of these cycles since I've been able to vote, and every one of them has said the same thing. It is the most important election ever. Every one of them has said that. If I'm a little bit cynical about that, it's because every time we've said that, it's only true for that moment. So what is the reality of Jesus in a time like this? Well, it's important for us to understand something about Jesus. Jesus was born into a time when there was a lot of political and religious unrest. 
a lot of political and religious realities that defined the life that Jesus stepped into, the world that he stepped into. Let me set the stage for you a little bit. In the time of Jesus' birth, there was an empire that ruled much of the Mediterranean, much of the known world of that time. It was called the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire ruled and occupied the region that we call today Israel. Domineered over them. They were the power of the day. And not only were they a political power, but they were a religious power as well. Why? Because their leader, Caesar, was considered God on earth. God present on the earth. That was the viewpoint of those who were a part of the Roman Empire and what they wanted to spread every place that they went. So that was one part of the political religious reality that Jesus was born into, a land that was occupied by a foreign power and a religious leader in Caesar. But there were other realities there too. There was another group of people, people known as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin were the highest political and religious authority in Judaism. You see, one thing about Rome is that as Rome spread out throughout the world, They wanted to promote their ideas, but they also realized that within each of the various areas, it was impossible to exert complete control. So they were wise enough to allow local people to worship their own gods, to worship in ways that they felt were necessary, provided that it didn't interfere with their ruling of the land. So here was the Sanhedrin the leaders of the religious movement of Judaism. They were religious leaders and they were political leaders. They set the rules. They set the standards. They set expectations. They held court based on the actions of the people in Judea, whether they acted religiously or politically. If they violated the laws, this was the highest law of the land, the Sanhedrin. They were political and they were religious And then there was a third kind of outlier in the midst of all this, a player who was definitely political and kind of quasi-religious. His name was Herod. Herod was a puppet king. He was put in place to give a little bit of a nod to the kingship that Judaism was supposed to have, that Israel was meant to have during that time period. Was he a true king? No. But he acted like a king. He acted like one who wanted the attention focused on himself and wanted all the benefits of being a king. And those benefits came to him primarily by pledging allegiance to the Roman Empire. So a lot of political and religious intrigue going on in the time of Jesus. A lot of systems vying for influence, vying for control and power within those lands. And in comes Jesus. Jesus is born into this system, and he comes saying this. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God has come near. Jesus comes proclaiming another kingdom in the midst of all these other kingdoms. And in the midst of that, Jesus himself, as God on earth, fully human and fully God, was tempted in every way. 
He was tempted to step into sin. He was tempted to partner up with these various religious and political systems that were in place at his time. And in particular, we see an encounter between Jesus and Satan, Jesus and the devil, the enemy, who comes to tempt him. And as we look at these temptations, we will see within them the political and religious systems that Jesus was being tempted to become a part of. I invite you to open your Bibles today to Matthew chapter 4. I want you to be following along and reading along as I read from Matthew chapter 4. We're going to be looking at the first 11 verses, Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Hear this encounter of Jesus and the enemy. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. Quite a story. Jesus led out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted for 40 days in these three particular ways. Let's talk a little bit about these three particular temptations that Jesus faced. First of all, he is tempted to turn stone into bread. You can imagine Jesus being out there for 40 days is pretty hungry, pretty thirsty. The temptation has to be pretty real, like it would be for any of us. Why? Because we have appetites. We have appetites, physical appetites, emotional appetites. These appetites are real, and they were real for Jesus. And so the enemy comes to Jesus and says, fill your own appetite. Meet your own need. Here are some stones. You are the son of God. Turn them into bread and eat. And Jesus resists this temptation by speaking the word of God and recognizing that he lives by bread, not just by bread alone, that we are called not to live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. There is more to this life than the bread and filling our own appetites. So that's the first temptation. The second temptation 
is where Jesus is brought to a high place, the peak of the temple, and the enemy looks at him and says, throw yourself off. Prove to everyone around you that you are truly the Son of God. If you are, here's some scripture that will say, nothing will harm you. The angels will catch you before you ever hit the ground. Draw the attention to yourself. It's all about you after all, so just do it. And Jesus responds to this by saying, you're also, says in scripture, do not put the Lord your God to the test. This is about pride. The first one's about appetite. This one is about pride. Jesus knows who he is. Jesus knows what he's called to do. But there is still a temptation that would be there to let everybody know who he truly was in that moment. To clear away any doubt. To dissolve any mystery. To show who he was in that moment by casting himself off the highest point in view of everyone around him. Here it is, settled, look at me. Jesus resists. No, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Then comes the third temptation. Satan takes Jesus, brings him to the highest point on the mountain, and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and then speaks to him. Here they are, every kingdom in the world, and I will hand them over to you to rule and to reign if all you would do is bow down and worship me. Funny, isn't it, that Satan thinks that he has the power to control all of the kingdoms of the world and has the authority to grant those kingdoms to Jesus. Doesn't that seem silly? Yet it's real, and it's a real temptation. Why? Because power is always tempting. Power given by another. Power invested in someone. Power to rule over everything. And power to do it in the ways of the enemy. Power to sell out to Satan just a little bit. Bow a knee. Bend a knee to him. Compromise just a little. And then all of this will be yours. And again, Jesus resists. Because there is no other king to bow down to. There is no other prince to pledge allegiance to. There is no other Lord but to worship God alone. And then Satan leaves. Appetite, pride, and power. Three temptations given to Jesus. And those three temptations represent something. Those three temptations are the ways of the world. They are the ways of the world, politically, religiously. These are the ways that the world 
operates. Now, what do I mean when I'm talking about the world? Well, let's look at another passage of Scripture, just to kind of clarify this for a moment. Let's read from 1 John chapter 2, beginning at verse 15. 1 John chapter 2, beginning at verse 15. Hear these words. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. When we see the word world showing up in the Bible, and when we use that word world, in our everyday language, there are two different meanings. There's the meaning that all of us kind of share with everybody around us. When we're talking about the world, what are we talking about? We're talking about the planet. The planet Earth, all of its creation, all the creatures who are part of it. The world, right? This is my Father's world. For God so loved the world. What a wonderful world, right? That's the world that we're talking about most of the time when we're talking about the world. But not here. Here there is another meaning for the world. And that word means something else here. And let me give you a definition. This meaning of the word world means this. The God-rejecting systems that direct people away from the grace and love of God. That's what this passage means. That's what is being spoken of when we talk about the ways of the world. And we're called to not love those ways. Because every one of those ways is meant to distract, direct, and divide people from God and from each other. And those systems are everywhere. All you have to do is look around and you will see those systems hard at work through all of the different ways that we function in the world, whether it's through politics or government or movements, and sometimes even in churches and other institutions. Anything that is designed to be a God-rejecting system to divide, distract, and direct people away from the grace and love of God shown through Jesus Christ. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Three things, and you can connect those three things to the three temptations that Jesus, in, that Jesus faced. Appetite, lust of the flesh, consuming what we want for ourselves, taking in everything that we think we need. I think there's one thing in particular right now that we are taking in more of all the time. And that is all the different forms of media, all the different opinions and positions being put out there in front of us on our screens, on our televisions, through the radio, through the podcasts, whatever it might be. We are being subjected to all sorts of different things to consume. And we've developed quite an appetite for it. And the problem with that is this. 
The more you listen to those voices, the more inclined you are to only listen to those voices. The more you eat at that table, the more inclined you are to always eat at that table and always receive what it is that reinforces your belief, that reinforces your bias. Our appetites drive us to listen to every voice in the world and to pick particularly the ones that reinforce our biases. It's a dangerous thing. It is a dangerous temptation to only listen to the voices that reinforce what you think. To only listen to the voices that will further split you and divide you from someone else. That's the way of the world. Consuming this stuff that fills you. What about pride? (laughs) Self-righteousness. The pride of life. Hey, look at me. I'm right. You're wrong. You should listen to me and nobody else. These are the sources of the things that feed people. And sometimes human beings become just a part of that source. They become a sounding board. They become an echo chamber of what it is that everybody else is saying that agrees with them. Listen to me. I've got the answers. Just follow me. And I will tell you how to direct yourselves in this political, religious reality of the world. They're strong voices. They're strong personalities. And those personalities are driven by pride. And God speaks something else to us from his word about pride. It says that pride goes before the fall. Pride goes before falling down. Jesus was called to throw himself off the top of the temple as an act of pride. Friends, pride destroys. Pride puffs up. Pride in thinking that your perspective is more important than anyone else's in this world destroys. It's a worldly system. Lust of the flesh and the pride of life. Well, what about the lust of the eyes? That's power. Power. Political power in particular. The world systems drive us to want power. And power is about there being winners and losers. And about the winners enjoying all the spoils and the losers Well, being left to themselves. You know what? The only place where we should really have any fun with winners and losers is in watching a football game. You're going to watch the Vikings and Packers today. There's going to be a winner. There's going to be a loser. Feel free to cheer for the winners. Feel free to boo the losers, okay? (laughs) But not in these arenas. Not in the arenas that, that matter out in the world. When those arenas are about winners and losers entirely, we're being sucked into a system that's about power and about having power over someone else. Get enough people on my side and we win and you lose. Are there winners and losers in American political life? Sure. Of course there are, and of course there will be. 
But what are we called to do and to be when these three temptations are showing up all around us? Temptations of appetite, of pride, and of power. Well, we're called to live into the word of God. We're called to trust in Jesus and to see what Jesus does in these systems. Jesus rejects all of them. Instead of appetite, Jesus practices self-control, a fruit of the Spirit of God, the same Holy Spirit that abides in you as a follower of Jesus. The ability to say, no, I'm not going to spend my time listening to all those voices that want to feed me things that will ultimately derive me away from God and away from my brothers and sisters in Christ as well as bring further division into the world. I'm just not going to listen to those voices anymore. I will practice self-control. That's what Jesus exemplifies. And in place of pride, Jesus shows humility. He teaches humility. Jesus lives out his ministry, showing amazing miracles, revealing who God is in his love for humanity and his desire to forgive them and draw them into his family. But he doesn't make it all about him. In fact, when he's asked, what are you doing and, and how are you doing it? He said, I only do what I see the Father doing. I only say what the Father tells me to say. He submits himself to his heavenly Father and calls us to do the same. And in the place of power, Instead of taking control, instead of charging into Jerusalem as a, a warring king, Jesus serves. He serves his disciples. He serves those in power. There's a Roman centurion who comes to Jesus and asks Jesus to, to heal his servant. And rather than playing a political game with him and saying, well, no, I can't do that for you, you're on the other side. Jesus cuts right through that to the humanity and reality of that soldier caring about a servant, caring about a fellow human being. That's what it means to serve and to bypass all of these political and religious systems that want to trap us and draw us away from the grace and love of God. So what are we to do? Well, friends, as I mentioned at the beginning, when Jesus arrives on the scene, he cries out to the people, and he says, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. What are we called to do as followers of Jesus? We're called to recognize what kingdom we belong to, first and foremost, before anything else. We're called to be a part of God's kingdom. Friends, before you are a citizen of this country, you are a subject of a kingdom. That's for you, church. That's for you, follower of Jesus. Before any other allegiance, 
You are the subject of a kingdom and its king. And you are called to represent him in the world. To show the love of Jesus. To reveal it to the world. And that means that we have to repent. We have to repent and turn away from the way that the world would prefer to do things. The ways of appetite, of pride, and of power. We repent of those things and we turn our eyes to Jesus and we hear the good news. The good news that Jesus came, Jesus died for sinners like you and me that we could be called saints and become a part of his eternal kingdom and share and reveal that good news to every person around us. So let's get real practical. How are we going to do this? Friends, in a few days, people are going to be upset. Doesn't matter which party wins, doesn't matter which candidate wins, there are going to be people in this country who are going to be upset and hurting. Our call in that is not to feed into it, it's not to fill our own appetites, it's not to stand up in pride and say, I told you so. It's not to seek power by aligning ourselves with some earthly kingdom. Our call in that moment is to find a hurt and heal it and find a need and meet it. That's our call. And it makes all the difference in the world how we choose to do that in these days ahead. So pray, friends. Repent from every other way of doing business. Be the church. Let's represent Jesus as Jesus shows his love to us and through us to the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We trust in you, Father. We trust in your Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you. We trust in the kingdom that you have revealed a kingdom that doesn't work in the ways of earthly kingdoms and doesn't buy into earthly systems. Help us, Lord Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit to be that light, to be that source of love and grace reflecting what you have shown us in your own life and what you have taught us in your word. Thank you, Jesus, for leading us and guiding us. I pray, Lord, that every person within the sound of my voice would be reminded today, Lord, of your kingdom coming near to them right where they are, of your gentle call to repent from every earthly system that divides, distracts, and directs people away from you, and to come in to the light of the good news, Jesus, Lord of all. Thank you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen.